I think we'll always see that poor built environment leads to poor health, but we don't necessarily have to buy into the idea that if you are black and live in an inner city neighborhood, that you are going to have poor health because of your poor housing. We can break those connections and we can raise essentially the levels, the number of people who are in appropriate healthy housing. Why is it acceptable for us to have unhealthy housing? Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this season of our podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Zero, the end of prostate cancer. We will build upon the Promoting Health Equity in Cancer Care virtual workshop hosted by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, which was co-chaired by Gwen Darian of NPAF and Reggie Tucker-Seely of Zero. We are excited to kick off this season in a unique way. The guests will share how the impacts of sexism, ageism, homophobia, and structural racism have really influenced healthcare access and delivery for them. Here are their stories. Introduce yourself and your work and a little bit about why you're passionate about it. My name is Zinzi Bailey. I am a social epidemiologist meaning that I focus on the social determinants of health or social factors that drive patterns in health. So thinking about who is ill, who is not ill, who has the highest level of well-being, who doesn't, all the in-between of those different kind of poles. But thinking about what are the elements of our social environment that are driving some of those factors. A lot of the times we can talk about very key risk factors or a specific behavior or something like that. But all of that is rooted in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And there are key elements of our lives that constrain our choices, constrain our behavior, lead us in one direction versus another. And that's what we see in terms of population health, public health, thinking about the range of different people within our population, we're gonna be seeing the influence of those social factors. Yeah. It makes us who we are. The world around us does influence what happens within us and our thoughts and and what results in, in our health. So for people who aren't as familiar with the term of social determinants of health, because maybe they aren't as into our world as we are, please explain what are some examples of social determinants of health? So when we're talking about social determinants of health, we're often talking about key living conditions, key factors that we're experiencing in our social environment. You could be thinking about our neighborhood environment, key elements of the social environment of that neighborhood, what services you have available to you within that neighborhood. You could be also talking about work, right? Those of us who end up working not from home (laughs) are also going to a different environment. And there are different characteristics about that environment that influence how we can live day to day. And those influences, since we spend, you know, upwards of eight hours a day at these locations, they influence what we're taking home and what we're embodying. We can talk about for children, our school environments, what they're exposed to on a daily basis is very key to their health. 
what they're eating at school, what they're experiencing at school, who they're interacting with at school are key to their health. So these are not just restricted to physical health. We're talking about both physical and mental health, and they're inextricably linked. But thinking about all of the elements that are coming at you on a daily basis, all the environments that you're exposed to as you work, play, pray, all of those places, all of those interactions that you have. Yeah. And sometimes we're not even in control of Mm -hmm. what's happening Mm -hmm. in those environments and what we're exposed to. Mm -hmm. But yet it does have such a, a profound impact on our health outcomes. And from studying a lot of your work, you talk about how this environment does impact our health outcomes Mm -hmm. and how for some people more than others, that results in increased risk factors and inequities. So just share a little bit about what you have found when it comes to different disparities. So I think I will add another key term to this, which is something that I use as a social epidemiologist, which is social determinants of health inequities which are sometimes different in how you're applying it than social determinants of health. Oftentimes the social determinants of health, you can talk about poor built environment, poor housing, or something like that in in the abstract. Poor housing leads to poor health. But let's say that we talk about a child who lives in public housing. They have asthma. If that public housing is under-resourced to actually address common pests, whether they're animal or environmental, then that child is going to be experiencing higher levels of asthma attacks, which many of them might require them to go to the ED. They might need to be hospitalized. I think we get more to the root of the issue when we say, who is that child? And thinking on a population level, who are those children overrepresented Mm -hmm. in public housing? And why is it that that public housing necessarily means a poor built environment? All of those things are not just random. There's social determinants of health inequities that are driving that distribution of living conditions across the population. It's not just handed out equally across groups. There is a a process of resource allocation. There are choices and decisions made about what things are funded within public housing, how much is allocated to public housing, and then also how we structure our economy, essentially, and how we compensate Mm -hmm. people so that we would be questioning why does that family or those families need to have public housing in the first place? Why is a working wage not a living wage? Why is our housing so expensive that it is impossible to get appropriate, healthy housing for the amount of wages that we receive? So when I'm talking about inequities and disparities, I'm really talking about further upstream to the social systems of racism, classism, heterosexism, ableism, things that are driving the pattern and distribution of living conditions that we're seeing in our population. I think we'll always see that poor built environment leads to poor health, but we don't necessarily have to buy into the idea that if you are black and live in an inner city neighborhood that you are going to have poor health because of your poor housing. We can break those connections. 
And we can raise essentially the levels, the number of people who are in appropriate healthy housing. Why is it acceptable for us to have unhealthy housing? Oftentimes when we get into this kind of work, we are investigating and questioning some of the decision-making that has already happened and thinking about how we can intervene, not just to you know, make sure that the children who have asthma have health insurance or that the one apartment in public housing is remediated, but thinking about what is the larger structural change that we can go for so that we are not continually doing that over and over and over again. I love what you said about just because these are the patterns that we've seen in the past, it doesn't mean that we can't break those connections. Mm -hmm. So have there been different places or organizations or policies that you have seen that have done a lot of great work in trying to break those connections? So that is a really good question because I feel like people are trying to move in that direction. So there's ways that we've tried to move towards equitable policy, both on the local level and on a structural level. But I don't think we've fully gotten into it. I think one of the attempts is, number one, just naming, identifying the issue at hand. I think oftentimes people are overwhelmed or don't want to name what is going on. And I think that is hampering the progress that we can make. So if we are continually denying what is actually going on and why we're seeing the patterns we're seeing, we'll never get to the root of the issue. On the level of organizations, the UNC Cancer Center and some of the initiatives that they've had from a community-based participatory research standpoint, really narrowing and eliminating treatment gaps between black and white patients with early stage lung cancer. That is achievable. If we continue to stay in the space where we're thinking about genetic arguments about why black patients are doing worse than white patients, we never get to the issue of patient navigation, being able to navigate through some of these horrible living conditions that are rooted in racism and classism. We never get to that point if we're only staying in a genetic argument or thinking about innate differences between individuals. When we think about those as being modifiable risk factors, that's when we are really going to get into change. From a quality improvement standpoint, we can think about that cancer center investing in patient navigators, investing in changing their workflows so that you're continually looking at the treatment outcomes by race and ethnicity to give feedback to the clinical team on what's happening with their patients rather than just keep on going on the same old, same old, and being able to then have real-time alerts within your electronic health record that are trying to help identify people who are falling through the cracks. And from that initial study, it wasn't just Black patients that did better to close that gap. Everybody did better. Everyone did better. That's quality assurance. So the more that we think of moving towards health equity as something for us all to attain our best health potential, the more that we're going to find solutions that work and that can be transferred all over. In terms of more policies, I think we're still in that waiting game of like figuring out what's actually gonna, going to hatch or be harvested. So let's say the New York City Board of Health is declaring racism as a public health crisis. What does that mean in practice? One thing that 
we can see as one of the first steps is it at least stimulates some kind of reflexive action within each one of these government entities, including the health department. It's recognizing, naming, and identifying like, we have been a part of this, or we might maintain some of the existing structures of racism that were already in place. So how can we break our ties to that? If we recognize it, then that's when we can break those ties. I love that. When we recognize it is Mm -hmm. when we can do that. Exactly. But I feel like in this country, we have a history of not wanting to to recognize it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, not naming it for what it is. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, structural racism, Mm -hmm. which is deeply rooted in uh, so many systems and institutions. I feel like we always talk about the pursuit of Mm -hmm. health equity as opposed to what it will actually look like to finally achieve health equity. So what does the achievement of health equity look like to you? So I feel like this could be a question that you ask a lot of different people, because Mm -hmm. when I think of what that world would look like, I have an Afrofuturist world in mind. And that's from my perspective, right? Because in that Afrofuturist world, if we are lifting from the bottom, as they say, thinking about equity, we're lifting everybody up. I would want to see in all of our decision making to be thinking about who might this be harming? How are we fitting into an existing system that is actually perpetuating inequity? How can we break that cycle? We don't want to just fall into convenience because it's easy. It's what people have always done. If we know that it's inequitable, right? That is what I would be hoping for. We might not always be successful, but I would want us to be really thinking through decision-making with that in mind, thinking about people over profits. I think that would be a key element. So much of my work is focused on structural racism. And so I think about this a lot. And I think people are stuck in the process because they don't know what to do. There's no blueprint for how this is gonna move forward. And I think that it's important for us to think not just on like, okay, it's gonna look like elimination of health disparities, because it's more than just elimination of disparities. It's about everybody achieving their highest level of health. It's about creating a system that is equitable. It's about creating systems that are focused on all the people. When we look at that vision, I think we have to let go of some of our attachments to normal. And Mm -hmm. when I talk about structural racism, I talk about key factors. Number one being kind of mutually reinforcing systems of inequity. So thinking about from a sector standpoint, right, that the education sector may be propping up inequities in the criminal legal space, propping Mm -hmm. up inequities in the health space. All of these things are acting in concert with a larger system of racism. So the more we're recognizing those things, if we had a common goal of Mm. people's ultimate well-being, we would be working towards a different end and in different ways in collaboration. In addition to that, it's not just that, it's also the normalization of poor health outcomes or poor social outcomes for marginalized people. That's part of their marginalization. Yeah, of course they have poor outcomes. They die at a higher rate because they're Black, right? That's what the statements end up 
seeming like because we've normalized it so much. And we've reified these disparities into our daily practice. And we talk about maybe reducing or, but our, our aim should be elimination of those mm-hmm. inequities. The elimination of a gap between black and white survival from breast cancer. The elimination, right? Yeah, we might fall short in the short term, but mm-hmm. knowing that that is our goal, we move towards it in that way. Yeah, the complete elimination of it. You brought up a great point that was that was shown in one of our previous episodes when I interviewed a young woman, Adrienne Moore. She talked about expressing lots of symptoms, being a black woman and, and not feeling hurt, going to multiple doctors saying, hey, my periods are irregular, I'm, I'm experiencing all these bleeding, I know that there's something wrong, and just being dismissed time after mm-hmm. time, saying, oh, well, black women normally have fibroids, or oh, you have a history of ovarian cancer, you know, never taking it to that next level to really address the deeper issues. And and when everything was said and done, eventually when she went to a provider who did listen to her and did hear her and didn't dismiss her, she found out that she had the later stages of endometrial cancer. Mm-hmm. So exactly to your point of us continuing to normalize these problems is really preventing us from closing that gap mm-hmm. and eliminating this disparities overall. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that also brings in a key element of um, education and not educating from a, oh, we'll just do a training and we'll learn a couple things. But thinking about there's a level of indoctrination within a medical field. So within medical school, within nursing school, within even public health school in certain situations where you are taught to think in a certain way where you're putting people in boxes, right? The most expedient way to think about you have a black 35 year old female who's come into the office. You are meant to, from that narrative, put that person into a box as to what Mm -hmm. their potential issues might be, as opposed to fully hearing what they're saying and investigating. Add on top of that, then, oh, well, the health system doesn't want to spend too much. So make sure that you're not recommending unnecessary tests and it's actually a misuse of funds and blah, blah, blah. So when you get into that, there are perverse incentives to not treat people adequately. Being within a business model, (laughs) it does not make for good health. It does not make for equitable distribution of healthcare. So these are systems that are set up. There are the individuals and we can't just stick with the individuals. The individuals are important. We do need to talk to the individuals and we need to have that continual reprogramming or deprogramming of our current healthcare force in order to break out of some of those models. But beyond that, we need to set up the systems where making the equitable choice is the easy choice. Mm. And that is about having an anti-racist practice, right? It's about creating anti-racist systems where we're Mm. continually building that into how we construct our workflow, how we're building our funding models, how we're uh, constructing our workflows. All of those things are going to be playing a role, but we have to be active in that. So both as a individual, seeing another individual, and Mm -hmm. as a kind of part of an architecture of services, different policies of healthcare, education of a range of different sectors. Yeah. 
Now, I love what you pointed out about, yes, individuals are important, but the the change won't be long-lasting and sustainable if we just focus on individuals. It is more of a systemic problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because if you train and you, you invest in the specific individuals that you're who are in power or in a particular position, mm-hmm. it will only live as long as those people are alive, right? And to some degrees, like, you know, it's going to fade off in certain ways. <laughs> so unless there is a continual reinforcement of that within work environments, incentive structures, rewards and penalties, like the, whichever way you are, are going to set that up, but there has to be a level of accountability after you're talking about those kinds of investments. If you're learning, okay, you've learned, but why would you put that into practice if it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with what you do on a daily basis? For instance, you can think about like, you know, academic structures, right? Mm-hmm. You can talk about, you know, valuing community voice and valuing uh, mentorship. But if mm-hmm. the criteria for promotion and tenure, for example, are based on number of publications and number of grants, how can you expect those to be priorities? Mm-hmm. There are you know, perverse incentives to not do those things, to completely abstain, to not care, to take community voice into account, right? And there are perverse incentives for you not to challenge the systems that you're a part of that make that work difficult because it's all set up for you not to do those things. Yeah. We have to be accountable to the things that we're saying that we're aiming to do and it needs to be within all of our guiding documents and how we're planning our vision for any of our institutions. Any of the workforces that we're trying to develop. It has to be a part of it. Otherwise, it's yeah. just lip service. It's yeah. just lip service. Yeah. I love that. Really putting it into practice and having it be in action and instead of lip service. And it's obvious that we can't just educate ourselves out of this because, like you said, there needs to be incentives because this is a it'll be an uprooting Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. so many years of certain thought processes being a certain way. So to really make that change sustainable, there has to be something stronger behind it. Exactly. And I will add that, you know, we talk about education specifically, but then Mm -hmm. I think that something that I have undervalued, but have come to consider a lot more as I've gone along is the idea of narrative change. Because I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of popular narratives are key to how people are thinking, right? It's a kind of implicit bias, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of there's the, sl- the slower parts of our brain that are focused on the reasoning, but there's the quicker parts of our brain where we make some decisions that are, you know, they're about emotions. They're about what we've been taught in a, a very quick shortcut narrative, right? So yeah. we often fall on those, those narratives when we're making quick decisions or not really thinking things through when we're overwhelmed. But a lot of that times we don't even know all of the things, all of the narratives that we're taking in and are being incorporated into those quick thoughts, gut reactions. So I think as we go along, I think we have to be a lot more, I don't want to say aggressive, but savvy and strategic about narrative change 
because there's a lot of narratives that are completely wrong and continue to be perpetuated within the healthcare space, within popular media, within a range of different places where you're like, I thought we had moved beyond this, but no, (laughs) it's not beneath us to be talking about those narratives because they're essential to how people think, how people make decisions and what moves forward and what doesn't. What I'm hearing is you focusing on the intentionality Mm -hmm. behind changing those narratives. Exactly. Because it takes an intentional focus to change something like you said that comes so naturally. Mm -hmm. And that takes another level of us being intentional. But like you said, making sure that everything is equitable for all. Any other nuggets that you would like to to share with people as they they go out and and do the work? It can seem overwhelming, but Mm -hmm. our role is not to take on the whole thing. It wasn't just one person who took on or and created and set this in motion. It was us as a society, as societies. And so for us, it's to play our roles in the ways that we can to push us towards equity, making equitable choices on a daily basis. That may be choosing a different vendor for Mm -hmm. providing food, catering for an Mm -hmm. event. That might be one of our contributions. It's not gonna solve all of structural racism, but it's one step. We might take on like treatment disparities within cancer. We might take on treatment disparities within sickle cell or pain management. Those are things that people have done and been able to make measurable changes in people's lives. So we pick out some of the key components that we can see. We might not be able to tackle all of the components, but knowing that we have one part that we've carved out and we can partner with others. We can contribute to a larger body of research, of policymaking, of social change that is moving in that direction. So it's keeping your eye on the larger prize, the larger collective vision, while making the changes that you can individually. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.